Welcome, ladies, gentlemen, and in between to the latest, greatest episode of the Network Age. I'm Bitchel Ripson, here as always with my handsome co-hosts, Nilrun Mardux and Timluk Miptev. Boys, how are you doing today? Hey, doing well. Doing great. Looking forward to this one. Yeah, we're going to be joined shortly by some pretty exciting guests, two all-star reporters from Coindesk. Mark Hochstein and Tracy Wang. Mark also Fodrex Malmev on Twitter. Uh, sorry, not Twitter, Urbit. And they, <laughs> what, what are we doing? What, what, what platform do we support? Uh, <laughs> Twitter. Twitter, it's yeah, with this Twitter podcast. We've got to pump Elon's bags. Yeah, obviously. exactly. And I think this is going to be a really cool conversation. We're going to ask them about what they felt were the major narratives of 2022 and what they think 2023 is going to be about in the crypto world. So what, what are you guys are excited to talk to them about? Yeah, I mean, I was just particularly interested to hear, you know, we're obviously 2022 was a rough year from like price perspective, but, you know, Mark has been in crypto for a long time covering it. He also covered the 2017, 2018 cycle. So I'm really curious just like how this cycle kind of compared to the others in his perspective and kind of where he kind of sees things that can, you know, generate the next narrative coming forward out of what was, you know, admittedly a pretty rough year in 2022. Yeah, and for me, Coindesk did a lot on the FTX story, and I'd just like to get into some more about, you know, how that went down, where they're getting the information from, um, you know, anything that we might have missed in that, and just sort of finishing that up, because I feel like that's been such a big drag on crypto in general. Um, so just, you know, sort of closing that chapter, I think will be interesting for me. Yeah, I mean, Tracy in particular broke, I think, some of the relationship scandal stuff. So we'll get not only what happened uh, on a platform crypto level, but also some of what's going on behind the scenes. And I think we're also going to hear some interesting stuff from Mark about, you know, parallels to the to the wildcat banking days of yore and also what they think is going to be happening with regulation and other potential narratives for 2023. So this is a great episode and uh, we're looking forward to it. Stick around. Welcome back to the Network Age, and I'm here with our lovely guests, Mark Hochstein and Tracy Wang, uh, from, both from Coindesk. And we're really excited to have you guys here to discuss some of the larger crypto narratives from this past year, what you guys think is going to be part of the narratives going forward, and just uh, what is exciting to you guys in the space right now. So thanks to both of you for joining us. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you for having us. Of course, yeah. And I think uh, before we begin, we'd just love to give you guys a chance to introduce yourself and maybe say how you got into crypto, what it's been like working in the space, some things that are on your mind. So, Mark, why don't you take it away? Sure. Uh, so I am uh, the executive editor of Consensus, which is Coindesk's flagship event. Um, I've been at Coindesk about five years. Uh, for most of the last five years, I worked in editorial as an editor, but I moved over to events programming in November, although I still have a little bit of a hand in editorial. And uh, I got into uh, crypto uh, when it was mainly Bitcoin um, about 10 years ago. Uh, I spent most of my career at a uh, trade paper called American Banker uh, covering traditional uh, finance, traditional financial services for a very traditional financial services audience. But I came across Bitcoin in, I think, 2012 or 2011, 2012. I think originally there was an article in The New Yorker about it, and I just uh, it just blew my mind, the whole idea of it. I decided I had to, this is so weird and bizarre and fascinating and crazy that I got to learn everything I can about this. <laughs> so I started going to local Bitcoin meetups in uh, New York City. Uh, this was the time when you still had people trading Bitcoin face to face in the park, um, which I don't think would <laughs> a would, little uh, illicit. Yeah, uh, yeah. In fact, uh, the last time I bought a whole Bitcoin uh, was from a young man in sweatpants, uh, in the park, <laughs> um, wearing uh, our, our articulated toe shoes, and uh, it was like a hundred bucks for a Bitcoin then, and he threw in a T-shirt. Uh, it was just a very, it was a very what a sort deal. Of, yeah, it was like a very scrappy community then. And obviously, over the years, it's, um, you know, become this, you know, huge, chaotic, weird industry um, with a lot of different types. Um, and uh, 
you know, I'll, uh, you know, we, we can get into it, but, um, you know, I just, I just became fascinated by it. So when the opportunity came in 2017 to join Coindesk, I, I was very happy to, to make the move. Um, and, uh, yeah, now I'm, now I'm working on our event and, uh, Tracy. <laughs> well, so I have definitely not been in this space as long as Mark, who is a little bit of an OG. Yeah, it'd be hard but, to. But um, I also kind of found crypto. Yeah, yeah. I also found crypto through way of TradFi. I first learned about it in the you know that bull run in summer of 2017. I was an intern and in, in, I was still uh, in college, and I was interning at this uh, you know Wall Street trading firm. And kind of they gave the interns a summer project, which was just, oh, figure out what's going on with Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, and that's when I first learned about it. And, um, you know, that's that's also kind of when crypto went a little bit mainstream that summer in 2017. Um, and then I ended up... Uh, you know, not going into crypto full time, but I worked in TradBuy, worked at a asset manager in Boston uh, uh, after graduating from college and then kind of um, went into journalism where I was covering hedge funds and then realized that all of the most interesting hedge funds were doing something in crypto. And I kind of wanted to cover that, I guess, as a journalist. Basically, you're, uh, you you want to be long volatility, like you want to be covering a beat where <laughs> crazy things happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I thought, wow, like crypto seems really interesting. At least, whether it goes up or down, there should be really interesting stories. Uh, and, and so, in the summer of 2021, that was when I, um, you know, uh, joined CoinDesk, and now I'm a deputy managing editor, um, and just. I guess I do everything from writing stories to attending um, all these crypto conferences. I also help out a little bit with consensus. And, um, but I think at heart, I, I feel like I'm a reporter. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's, it's interesting that both of you come from sort of more traditional TradFi backgrounds and also writing in that space. Because one thing I was wondering was just, is it fun to work in the crypto writing space? I mean, no offense, Mark, but American Banker almost sounds like a joke, you know, publication. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But this, it sounds yeah. like you've got all this exciting stuff to report on now. Oh, yes. Well, I mean, to be fair, uh, American Banker is, uh, you know, that's where I grew up, um, it, uh, so to speak, uh, in my career. Uh, it, is, it is, in fact, actually one of the oldest um, publications in the country, uh, founded in 1836. I'll, I'll give you a little, I'll, I'll try to good one, Mitchell. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I got, I got roasted. No, no worries. <laughs> no, no. And actually they, they, I'll, I'll, it, it actually kind of comes back to crypto because they have an interesting history. And I know this because, um, before I got right before I got into, into Bitcoin was when I was working on American bankers, 175th anniversary issue. And, um, American banker was founded in 1836, uh, by a guy named John Thompson, who was kind of a crazy character. Um, if you read Jim Grant's book, uh, Money of the Mind, I think it's called, there's, there's, a, there's a chapter about Thompson. But this, that was the era of the wildcat banks. And that was when every bank in the United States had its own currency or issued its own currency. Mm. And um, so the original, it was originally called Thompson's Bank Note Reporter. We'll get back to Coindesk very shortly. Don't worry. Um, but, uh, but, it, but it is kind of a cool story. So uh, Thompson's Banknote Reporter was basically um, sort of a guide to like which banks were real and could actually redeem your uh, dollar bill for a dollar's worth of gold and which ones were uh, shin plasters, which is uh, the, the, the term of art at the time. The tethers uh, of the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 so yeah, maybe. We shall see. Um, uh, possibly. We don't, we're, we're, tether, we're tether maxis on here, Neil. Oh, yeah, so okay. you, you're, okay. not, you're not invited back. <laughs> so, uh, so, the, um, uh, so, you know, and, and that's kind of like why when I heard about Bitcoin, like it just, it kind of resonated just because, like and that, this was like that was the period after the financial crisis when people were just thinking about you know you know that was sort of like kind of like you know like the, the sort of the tail end of Occupy and just like there were just a lot of interesting ideas floating around about you know reimagining the financial system uh, you know reimagining money reimagining um, uh, um, reimagining 
you know, you know how things could work. So, um, so anyway, so yes, American Banker is a great publication. Um, they, you know, they, they they do a lot of really good journalism. Uh, did some great work uh, during the financial crisis, after the financial crisis. But um, uh, you, you do have a point there, Mitchell, because uh, I will say this: um, it is like going from American Banker to CoinDesk has been like going from Kansas to Oz for me. I mean, you know, it's um, you know the the. You know, one of the analogies I like to use is if you think of a, a, you know, I'm not a statistician, but if you think of a statistical distribution, you know, most of the people I interacted with uh, covering banking were very much in like the middle of any bell curve, and just in terms of mm-hmm. personality types. I'm not talking about like mm. Wall Street. You know, you know, Wall Street has their type A's, but I, I'm talking about community bankers, which were sort of the bread and butter <laughs> of, um, you know, you know, you know, you're, you know, I, I mean, I don't want to compare them to George Bailey because that's very flat. It's, Overly flattering. It's, it's, then yeah. that's too flat. That's too flattering to the like community bankers to be well, compared to they, George they, Bailey they, they, or the other they, way. They, well, it's it's. A, I mean, it's you know, the community bankers mess up sometimes, but they do they do play an important role in their in their communities and in, in the economy in terms of like you know supporting business. But I, I I just say you know in terms in terms of like the kind of people you would meet, you know, just like average normal people, right? You know, um, and you know, like like you know, this you know, most of the people, you know, you had some outliers, you had some. You know, even in, even in, you know, even in retail banking, you know, you had some, uh, you know, relatively um, uh, kind of out there types, people like Vernon Hill from uh, Commerce Bank. Uh, although I guess Vernon Hill would seem very, very norm, very, very boring in crypto. But in banking, he was a he was an outlier. But, you know, most of the people you meet in, in financial services are just normal, normal people. And crypto, it's like more like a barbell distribution <laughs> Where it's either like the most brilliant, um, idealistic, uh, visionary people you will ever meet, or at the other end you have a big cluster of the worst people that you will ever come across, like scammers, <laughs> scammers, and 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 get rich quick artists. And there's not as much in between. So that that took some adjusting, I would say. Um, and, uh, you know, the other thing, and, uh, I would say is just, you know, in, in, in terms of like the new, you know, the, the, the flow of the day, um, uh, you know, at Coindesk, I mean, I, I'd say perhaps it's a little bit less, this is a little bit less true than it was early on because we have a bigger staff than we used to. But I would say just as a general rule, there are, da- there are, there are days that are exhilarating and there are days that are a grind and there's, there's 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 few chill days. There's mm-hmm. there's all and there's never boring days. I have never, like I've never watched the clock, uh, at court desk. <laughs> I've never I've never like looked at my watch and say like you know, you know when you know when am I going to get out of here? Like when when can I you know it's it's like, you know it's um you know adrenaline is the least of my problems. Yeah. Um, so. Well, that that's about as much as you can you can hope for. I think in a job sometimes is to be be occupied and. And interested? Oh, I'm I'm not complaining. I'm not. Compl- I'm blessed. <laughs> well, I think so. I think the you know discussion of of normalcy and what you said about the the types of characters that you run into there, whether they're they're geniuses or or scammers or you know everyone on the extreme, leads right into one of the questions I wanted to ask you both about, like what you felt like were the the major narratives of crypto in 2022. And, and Tracy, I know you did a lot of reporting on uh, the, perhaps the star of, of 2022 SBF and the FTX scandal. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you feel like that story fits into larger crypto narratives and just what that experience was like to report on it. I think, to go out with the statement that 2022 was a terrible year for crypto is is probably accurate. <laughs> um, I can't think of like a worse disaster year. Uh, and I, I think if I were to boil down like main narratives in one sentence, it would be like disaster, terrible, crypto winter, blow ups, like all of that. Um, from a price perspective, all, you know, bunch of uh, Bitcoin, I think, was down like 60, 70 percent. And then some shit coins went to were down like 99 percent. So um, <laughs> it's a lot of shit coin for, now for people in crypto. Um, I, well, we can get to 2023. <laughs> sure. 
But I think Solana was was a big, uh, you know, took a big L in 2022. Um, although maybe not the worst. There were some coins mm-hmm. that, you know, I don't, I don't think Solana was down like 99%, but there were some coins that, that were. Um, and uh, I, I kind of think the FTX collapse bookended just a bunch of different blowups that happened in 2022. So I, I think... 2022, and, and there was also no reprieve. It was kind of just a started out mm-hmm. with, you know, a giant sell-off, I think, from all-time highs. I think, uh, you know, market kind of was super frothy at the end of 2021. And so we went from, like, a sell-off right when January hit to, like, you know, uh, the Luna blow-up um, in May and then all of these um, lenders defaulting, uh, Voyager, Celsius, um in the summer and then oh and three hours capital and uh and then we got like a wave of layoffs all the major companies basically uh you know headlines of of them reducing headcount and then kind of uh in the fall we then had the ftx and um related uh blowups i think genesis is still kind of ongoing Mm -hmm. and so i i think of kind of ftx saga as bookending um, bookending all of that. But while this was going on as like, as a reporter covering it, it was, it went from like slowly as each subsequent blow up happened, it was like, Oh gosh, things are going worse and worse. And you never knew when the next blow up was going to happen. I don't think people really expected that, um, FTX was going to, um, kind of, uh, or I don't think a lot of people knew that FTX was like committing massive, fraud it looks like um so it was all a surprise and that kind of echoes what mark said that you know the space is just uh, it, it, crypto reporting is kind of like dog years and that like one year will pass but the <laughs> stuff that we saw in 2022 is like the equivalent of like a decade in traditional yeah. finance um and uh in in just like a year we went from all-time highs to all of these crypto companies being bankrupt I wanted to kind of pull on that a little bit more and ask uh, you, Tracy, what does that feel like to be a reporter while all this is going on, like from a practical perspective? Is it like people are constantly messaging you tips? Are you kind of going out and looking for things? Like, let's say just, you know, to be concrete, like when FTX was blowing up, uh, did that feel like, oh, it started with the um, CZ tweets and then went crazy or was there, or from your guys' side, was there like other stuff happening, you know, without giving away anything confidential, how does that feel like from reporting as opposed to just looking at, all, at it on Twitter or are those the same thing? Um, we, so Twitter is actually super important in, um, filtering information. Uh, there's a lot of junk on Twitter, but sometimes if you, you know, if you've been on crypto Twitter for a while, there are certain accounts that you find trustworthy and it is actually a great way to get news always. You know, I have my Twitter notifications on for CZ and, um, and and remember during that week we had say like, like it all played out on Twitter. Like Caroline was tweeting back at CZ saying, (laughs) I'll buy all your FTT. That's Um, right. So, so I remember that week. Uh, so, uh, so Ian Allison, um, our CoinDesk colleague, who's a great superstar reporter, um, he was able to get a copy of Alameda's balance sheet. And we kind of put out a pretty innocuous story at first. Just, you know, why that. does yeah. Alameda's balance sheet have so many FTT tokens? And it actually didn't really move the market when it first came out, it wasn't like, oh, story came out, like FTT plummeted. Like it wasn't like that at all. It actually took maybe a couple, two to three days for the information to kind of filter. And then it was actually, I I remember the story went out on a Wednesday and it was Saturday um, when CZ started to do his tweeting about how he was going to sell his FTT tokens. And that uh, or Binance's FTT holdings. And it kind of just snowballed from there. And I want to say that week, I, I remember, that week was probably the most hectic uh, week of reporting ever I've, I've, I've gone through. Um, I remember, you know, that Friday of that week, FTX filed for bankruptcy. And I just remember during that week, it was kind of like uh, staying up for like 16 hours a day. I remember just like, you know, trying to go to sleep, but there would be all these notifications happening, like some, some new shoe would drop, 
Um, and it was just like absolutely crazy. It, it, it was sort of quiet for those first uh, couple days, as as Tracy pointed out. But um, it is really staggering how fast from there FTX fell apart. You know, if you take a, mm-hmm. if you take a long historical view, like you know, uh, and I'm going to show my age here, but back in 2001, you know, the first story that kind of poked holes in Enron was a story in Fortune by Bethany McLean. It was called, Is Enron Stock Overpriced? Which, like, you know, in retrospect, was, 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 you know, was, was a very modest question to ask. And that was March of 2001. So it was months later before Enron goes bankrupt in 2001. In, you know, less than two weeks, the revelations by our colleague about FTX uh, and then the subsequent revelations that um, Tracy uncovered just crushed this whole empire. I mean, you know, they were, they were, you know, November 2nd is when the original story comes out. Um, you know, November 9th is when um, we have another story that, um, you know, Binance is getting cold feet about rescuing mm. FTX. The next day, Tracy has a truly incendiary story, which I'll let her talk about, about the, the inner workings of Sam Bankman-Fried's uh, inner circle. And, um, you know, it's, you know, before the end of November, um, you know, they're in bankruptcy court. It, it, was just, it was just amazing how rapid, how, how rapidly everything fell apart. Yeah. Do you think that's like just due to the more rapid rate of information spreading on Twitter, for example, like we could see in real time, you know, this amount of withdrawals happening from FTX. So it kind of creates this like faster paced panic. Um, Do you think it's a Twitter effect or just the underlying level of fraud and sort of instability at FTX? Twitter definitely played a role. I mean, things move much faster. Every like, you know, epoch, we all think that like, you know, think, you know, the world moves so much faster than it used to. And then, and then, you know, you know, two decades later, it's, it just seems like uh, so much slower. But yeah, Twitter, I, Twitter, I definitely think is like, like turbocharged everything. So I have some thoughts on like the speed of the collapse. I think crypto people are uniquely paranoid. Um, and what really kind of hurt FTX was just the speed and volume of the withdrawals. And it became a point when like the exchange didn't have enough reserves. I think I think Sam had tweeted that like they were trying to process either like five to eight billion dollars of customer withdrawals. And if you look at most bank runs, um, you know, a bank only really holds like 10% of their customer deposits mm-hmm. in a reserve. And, you know, it's very, very rare that like more than 10% of its assets would be pulled at all time. It is just like way more stable. And with crypto, I think, you know, there's sometimes a uh, like cascading effects where it's it's like really unstable and people will hear some rumor about an exchange going insolvent and because this has happened before multiple times in the history of crypto people learn from those like oh gosh i gotta get my funds out and then you had like ftx just like absolutely not prepared at all for the volume of the withdrawals and then it turns out they were like fraudulent <laughs> and they didn't have the money to begin with um, so that was, I think, a huge part of the, uh, the, the speed of the collapse. That's very endemic to just crypto. Mm-hmm. I think that speaks to some of what you said earlier about 2022 just being a crazy year and you're always looking over your shoulder for the next collapse. And when each one of these happened at first, everyone denied it, you know, whether it's Three Hours Capital or, or Lunar or FTX. And then all of a sudden it's, it's happening like lightning. And I think you're right that when crypto people see one of these things coming, they think, oh man, it's it's going to be over if I don't act very quickly, right? They've, they've got to get in there instantly. Yeah, I'm curious. Do you see that as sort of like healthier? Like Mark, you worked more covering traditional finance. You know, this is sort of seems like the Austrian economics, Austrian economist dream when, you know, the bad capital is kind of flushed out of the system. Um, so I'm kind of curious on your view of that. Um, but also, you know, does this set the stage for like a really positive 2023 now that a lot of, you know, these fraudulent and relatively insolvent companies have been flushed out of the market? Or, you know, have they all been flushed? <laughs> are, are there still more <laughs> waiting in the wings? The first part of your question, Nilran, I think the, the, I, I think there, there is a case that like, yeah, definitely the corrections happen 
a lot harder and a lot faster and a lot more painful. But then, um, I mean, hopefully what that means is that, like, you really do flush out all the bad actors. That would be nice if that sets us up for for a better a better time this year. I mean, it could take a while, though. I mean, the, the, the bankruptcies, these bankruptcy cases are going to take a long time to play out, right? So those, a lot of assets are going to be tied up in bankruptcy for a very long time. There are a lot of... Uh, novel legal questions around crypto that these bankruptcy cases are dealing with. You know, mm-hmm. I think you know. One, you know, there's a whole interesting question that's come up in these bankruptcy cases. You know, are the, are the customers who held crypto at these exchanges, you know, being listed on as creditors, people who a are you know have probably lost their money, are now getting doxxed, right, because of the way that the bankruptcy uh, law, and I'm not a lawyer here, but I understand the way that the bankruptcy law or the bankruptcy court recog- uh, defines a creditor, um, the people who were storing crypto were affected here and, and, and sort of get caught up in it the way that, um, you know, you know, wouldn't be the case if like it was like a brokerage company going bankrupt or, or, or a bank failing. So, that, I mean, I'd, I'd say the market in crypto corrects very fast. But, you know, the, 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 to- the final resolution of the assets could take a while, uh, just like, you know, it took years after the thrift crisis in the 80s and 90s. And it took years after the global financial crisis for all the, you know, foreclosures and toxic assets to work their way through. Um, uh, one sort of consolation prize, crypto can definitely brag that it has not been bailed out like, like you know, the banks post-2008. So, you know, they're getting no special treatment. There's no TARP. There's no trouble asset relief program. So in that sense, you could, you could say that crypto is, is ripping off the Band-Aid. The, the one interesting exception would be Silvergate uh, Bank, which is uh, one of the very few um, traditional financial institutions that openly uh, serves uh, the crypto space and, and serves crypto crypto businesses, um, and they've been they've been suffering because they uh, they you know they, they just you know all their clients have been hurt. Um, they did you know they did lending. One way that they that that served as a kind of a backstop for them, ironically enough, even though they had gotten rid of their traditional real estate lending business, they were still a member bank of the federal home loan bank system. If you're a member of the FHL basis FHLB system, you have a line of credit with them that you can draw on. It's perfectly legal for Silvergate, which had you know been serving the you know almost exclusively crypto and fintech companies to draw on that and i think that's helped silvergate out so that's the only closest thing to a bailout that we've seen but overall uh yeah crypto uh, i think crypto's ripping the bandaid off given that uh going into like we, we rather than talking about maybe 2023 generally in the wake of 2022 what are you more uh cynical about than you were before 2022 started and what are you more optimistic about going forward now i'm pretty cynical about um, any type of centralized crypto credit facility. Uh, one, one major theme in 2022 was that every single centralized crypto lender blew up. Voyager, BlockFi, Celsius, Genesis. I think the, that entire segment just got completely blown out. I mean, it was basically like you see it in traditional financial markets, when credit giving facilities become a little bit loose, these names, they were just doling out money to anybody who wanted it. Alameda, Three Arrows Capital, all of those parties kind of blew up. And who was on the other side of that were these retail investors that were giving money to Celsius and Voyager, and they ended up getting shafted. So I think I'm pretty cynical about that whole business model. Um, it's it's very very rare for like every single company that operated along those lines to get blown up it leaves an important question because we know that easy credit in general just fuels number go up <laughs> you know it's it's the same thing in traditional financial cycles you know over extended credit like people get easy money they do reckless things with them and then it all tumbling down and so i see kind of parallels with that and a lot of the excesses we saw in this last cycle were, I think, fueled by that. Yeah, so I'm pretty cynical on those and maybe a little bit more optimistic or curious about what's going on with on, on the regulatory front. Like, I think 
You know, if you are a regulator, you need and you see what has happened in the absolute disaster in crypto in 2022. If you're any like the CFTC, the SEC, the DOJ, every single, you know, three letter, uh, the alphabet soup of, of government agencies, you're going to want to kind of say what is okay and what is not okay. And one thing that is really problematic, I think, for crypto and ultimately harmful for for the industry's long-term health is just the way in which risk buckets pull together rather than siloed. So like if you want one, if, if one domino falls, you don't want, you want the other dominoes to be far away enough that it doesn't, you know, send the next domino falling. And that was a problem that we saw in 2008 with the traditional finance, oh, with, you know, the financial crisis. But in crypto, it's like that magnified like 10 times. Like we, we saw in November when FTX went down, gosh, like Solana got impacted, these VCs got impacted, BlockFi got impacted. Like there were all of these second and third order effects. And even Coindesk, are, you know, got impacted because of the Genesis DCG connection. And so, like, crypto is kind of an incestuous industry in that, you know, Coindesk writes a story about that about FTX, and then FTX goes down, and turns out it impacts, you know, a sister company owned by the same parent company, DCG. And that kind of, I don't think, is very good for the industry in the long run. Like if the Wall Street Journal were to write a, you know, expose on the New York Stock Exchange, like I don't really think that the Wall Street Journal would, I don't think it would eventually go back and bite itself. Um, And so I see all of these like risk pooling in in crypto that I think is, is quite bad for the industry and kind of needs to be a little bit separated out. Is that a product just of the fact that crypto is still relatively niche, you know, compared to something like TradFi? Like it probably gets talked about by many more people than are actually invested in it. And is it is it just a matter of expanding the number of people in it? Or do you think that that only gets solved by regulation? Or is there some other, you know, solution on the, on the horizon? Um, I definitely think there is a little bit of you know, people not really knowing how the black box works, you know, like if I were (laughs) a retail investor that put money that say I made a, uh, you know, account with uh, Celsius, I, they, nobody really questioned like, oh gosh, Celsius, what were you doing with my funds on the other end? And oh gosh, like you're loaning them to three arrows capital, uh, you're giving them these loans that are under collateralized, like maybe that's not great. So I think, there was not a lot of people asking good questions on where all of, on, on, you know, say I give money to this lender, what were you doing with that money? Um, and I also think that there were definitely certain regulatory problems with FTX. The fact that they were just like in the Bahamas doing God knows what with like a government that they probably paid off. Like, <laughs> I, I don't think that like they could have gotten away with things that they did in the Bahamas if they were, say, like based in U.S. or some country with like a strong, you know, strong regulatory uh, body that, you know, had clear guardrails. But it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, what goes on on that front. I don't really have a view of like pro or anti-regulation, but I do think that it'll be interesting to see what goes on at that front Mm. later on. You have the reporter's mindset, not of rooting for any particular side, but rooting for something interesting, which is perhaps a little dangerous for everybody else. I do think that the regulators have a little bit of egg on their face and they're definitely, they need to issue some type of response. And I think the response has to be strong, which we have seen in the recent weeks with all of these charges and, uh, you know, charges and filings, um, both civil and criminal. Yeah. And Mark, you, I think you wrote very recently about regulation in the space. You, I think, referenced sort of a similar idea to Glass-Steagall, but I guess I'm curious your views as well on this regulation front. Um, but also is this maybe Mark, just a problem of centralized finance, like is centralized finance crypto? Is it, uh, is it really worth kind of lamenting its decline or is it more like a signpost that people should self-custody, maybe move into DeFi? I'm kind of curious about your thoughts on this topic as well. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I, I wrote a somewhat trolly, uh, uh, post yesterday, uh, about this. That was, it was a bit tongue in cheek. Um, I argued that, uh, perhaps we should, uh, cr- basically separate custody and exchange the way that Congress separated Wall Street and commercial banking back in the 1930s. Um, And 
uh, part of it is, you know, you can't commingle funds, right? Uh, I mean, it's one, it's one thing to say, well, let's have separate legal entities within the exchange that are doing custody um, so you, to prevent commingling. But I was, I, I was sort of jo- somewhat jokingly arguing, no, let's just, let's just, let's just uh, say, instead of don't be evil, let's say can't be evil, right? Mm. You know, so, so that's one thought. I mean, you know, I, I do think that, like, you know, segregated accounts would be like a very reasonable thing to require of, the, of these institutions if they're going to be custodying customers' funds. The, the, you know, the fact that it doesn't, that that's not the norm is, is, is very bizarre and very weird. Um, the other reason I, I, I made that argument uh, somewhat provocatively was that if you didn't have central, centralized exchanges, uh, then you could only do decentralized exchange. And this would nudge the kind of behavior that uh, supposedly crypto has been all about, right? You know, people have been saying in crypto for years, not your keys, not your coins, right? You want to be a self-sovereign individual. You want to, uh, you know, you, know you, you, you don't want to be... Uh, at the mercy of some institution that could lose your your funds or just decide not to give it back to you for whatever reason, and you know that that's been the the rhetoric forever. But people still end up storing their funds at FTX, and I think a lot of that is because you know noobs come in, they see the ad in the Super Bowl, uh, and they and they just see it as like a way to make money, like a like a meme stock, and they come in and they don't do the do the research, and mm-hmm. they they end up. Um, they end up in this terrible situation. Uh, I, I realize the irony of, uh, you know, trying to uh, use regulation to turn people into self, self-sovereign individuals. Uh, again, it was sort of a tongue-in-cheek post. But I think it's worth thinking about. Um, I mean, it, it would, you know, I, I think it is, uh, to the other part of your question, very much more of an issue of, of centralized finance, or at least centralized finance that's not, that's not regulated at all, I mean, it's, you know, it's one thing to have, you know, centralization has its advantages and disadvantages, right? Centralization can make things more efficient. Uh, it can make things easier. Uh, it, can, it can improve uh, user experience in, in good times or in normal times. Uh, but, of course, uh, as we've seen, you know, the centralization of risk and the, um, uh, has, uh, you know, that was a huge issue in, in, in uh, 2008. And it's turned out to be a big issue in crypto as well. Crypto loses its way when it becomes about just a trading thing and trying to make money and trying to get rich quick. And you just forget about like, like why are we all here? Right. Are, are we really, you know, some people are here because they just want to make a fast buck and they want to get rich and they want their Lambo. And, and, and then, you know, I'm, I'm not going to condemn it, but it's just kind of lame. Hmm. <laughs> I, th- I think that's interesting. It reminds me a little bit on one of our recent episodes we had, Matt Liston, who's an Ethereum OG, he kept shouting about the need for more crack pipes, as he said it, by which I think he was saying we want the strange, the interesting, the ambitious, the people who are really thinking out of the box. Um, And that goes with what you said about some of your experience as a reporter with the the barbell side, like, you know, you, you have these really wacky, big personalities on either side. And I think that's interesting to think about in the context of these scandals that we've had and where the the quote-unquote perpetrators fit in this you know are are people like ftx you know sort of more bernie madoff style machiavellian evildoers who wanted to take your money and do something uh bad with it or are they young ambitious people who were not regulated enough in the Bahamas and took a little bit too much Adderall and got in over their heads. And I think, you know, people seem to debate this. And Tracy, you spent a lot of time reporting on uh, the particular lifestyle of SPF and the FDX people. So I'm I'm curious about your perspective about this. Like, who are these people? Are they normal villains? Are they something new? Yeah, I think they are villains in the sense that, um, you know, it appears they're they uh, committed large-scale fraud. I do think sure. they're a little bit. Um, they're a little bit. Uh, there are these kind of like um, nerds who perhaps thought that they were uniquely suited to like uh, profit off of the crypto industry and got in a little bit over their heads, and based off of Sam's actions. 
um, you know, is, is still in a little bit of denial about what has happened. I, I think that Sam Bankman fried he's publicly said before that he doesn't really believe in, you know, these decentralized ideals or any of these um, ideas that crypto OGs believe in. He kind of just said, oh, I'm here to make as much money as I can. I plan on giving it all away. And he's talked extensively about his effective altruism. People out there might disagree with me, but, uh, you know, there are some people out there who think that his effective altruism is fake. It's all just kind of like a PR stunt. But um, from what I can tell, and also talking to people who knew Sam back at his you know, college and, and um, younger days, he really, I think, believed in effective altruism. And this whole FTX operation, if you look at it cynically, was he opened a kind of crypto casino where DGENs can make an account on FTX and basically... Uh, gamble on perps, which is just um, uh, speculate on the price of coins using extreme leverage, which is not Mm -hmm. legal in the U.S., which is why he had to be in the Bahamas. And Alameda, well, FTX would make a fee. And Alameda was the market maker who basically also um, was supposed to make a tiny profit from from those trades. And so he didn't really care. Like, his he was just betting that crypto would become mainstream and he was uniquely suited to profit from that. And I do think that he was a real effective altruist and he was a utilitarian and he cared about, but the problem I guess that that is a little bit controversial is that he cared about things that were uh, really niche, like AI safety and pandemic preparedness. Um, But I do think that he was a true effective altruist and whether, and if you're an effective altruist, maybe you side with him that like, oh gosh, like all of these funds, he was eventually going to donate to charity. But I don't think that, you know, most effective altruists will say that committing fraud is acceptable. How effective an effe- of an effective altruist could he be if he went to jail? He you know, is an ineffective altruist. I, I think that he, he was very close to getting away with it, you know, <laughs> like, uh, like, like maybe there would have been an alternate universe where, you know, Coinos never wrote the story or CZ never tweeted and it would have been fine. Um, who knows how long, uh, you know, maybe, you know, the price of Bitcoin would go up and he raised another round for FTX and he saved the company and nobody ever knew that, you know, he committed massive fraud. Uh, I, I think that, you know... Was, they're, they're, he was very close to becoming too big to fail, like like Elon Musk. And and the fact that his, uh, his strategy got him to where he was in 2022, where he was on the cover of all these magazines, he was like hanging out with Tom Brady, FTX was in the Super Bowl. Like, I think that also shows to, you know, his strategy kind of did have results until it didn't. <laughs> I'm interested in one aspect of that, which is you said you talked to people who knew him over the years and things like that. Like, how much did you, could you sort of surmise that his personality changed as a result of either, I don't know, sort of massive crypto success? Like, you know, we've heard a lot about, you know, possible drug use, other things like that. Like, did you get the sense that he had changed substantially as a person? And if so, like, how much of that would you attribute to, like, just you know, crypto making things weird with money on the upside? And how much would you attribute to other factors? I don't think that crypto changed Sam's core values. You know, one one person who knew him while he was younger, I, I, I ran into and, and um, asked uh, this person who was in the same frat as Sam, um, who, which, which uh, interestingly, Sam was in a very nerdy, very dry frat where there was basically no drinking. Um, and so I, maybe, the, maybe mm-hmm. the Adderall use was kind of a, uh, or, or the stimulant use was kind of a surprise, but it does sound like he has some form of ADHD. And maybe, and, and there's a very like Silicon Valley type of uh, mindset where it's like, oh, you want to optimize uh, your productivity and perhaps <laughs> taking stimulants will like make you, um, you know, make you work longer, like help you work longer hours, help you stay focused. And perhaps that was like viewed as a good thing. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think that is like, oh gosh, he was like 
or, or maybe he was addicted to, to, to stimulants, but, but I do think that is a very commonly held viewpoint in Silicon Valley circles. Like, like these people that are like, you know, super efficient and want to like live forever. Like, I think that is also like a new trend now. And Sam was very embedded in those circles. Um, so I think that's where the kind of the Adderall use comes from. And I don't think that he really changed in terms of his core values. Again, back to this former person who knew him, um, he says that, well, everything that Sam has done seems perfectly in line with what he's always said, <laughs> you know. And one, one important thing to point out is I don't, I think Sam cares about people in the aggregate. And, and these are kind, kind of like Fermi people, like in effective altruism, he'll calculate the expected value of, you know, the expected value or the expected utility of all future lives. And that kind of justifies, wow. you know, actions <laughs> in the present day that might not be great. Like maybe it just, maybe you can justify fraud to yourself if you're like, hey, oh, I have to do this to save the company, you know, and then if I save the company, uh, I'll be able to donate billions of dollars to all of these, you know, EA causes. Is, isn't this just the isn't this just the plot dilemma of like crime and punishment? Like this doesn't feel like a very new line of reasoning. No, it's it's really not. I mean, I think most stories in general are, are not new. There's nothing new mm-hmm. under the sun. But I do think in the way that this has manifested in this like eccentric crypto oh, billionaire sure. <laughs> with a fraudulent yeah. exchange is like amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think Sam has really changed um, as a as as a person in terms of his core beliefs. Yeah, he was he was in college and they were talking about the trolley problem and he's just like, "What problem? You just pulled the lever. You just you just pulled the lever. No problem at all." Uh, well, I think since we're since we're talking a little bit uh, SBF personality stuff, you know, just because we're here for for the dirt, uh, how did how did you hear about the the polycule? And and do we do we have confirmation? Oh, I heard some pushback on the polycule, but I want to believe it. <laughs> um so i think the polycule narrative which by the way if you read the original coindesk story the word polycule does not show up at all <laughs> <laughs> um so that was kind of a little bit of a you know people got a little creative on um on twitter i think and and that kind of just spread but i, I guess now i can set the record straight in that you know the story was meant to say that uh, him and his nine roommates. So there were 10 people in the house. They were all kind of paired off romantically as in there were like five couples or former couples. Um, and then I think mm. people misinterpret it to like, Oh, they were all dating each other and were like polyamorous. Um, but that was not to my, um, at least not the information that I had. And so basically I was just trying to say that of the 10 people in the house, four of them were kind of dating in monogamous relationships from what I can tell. And then the last two people were Sam and Caroline, who is the CEO of Alameda Research, and they had previously dated. Um, the, the thing that also threw this theory for a loop was um, if you, there was a, uh, somebody uncovered a Caroline's blog on Tumblr and she had written a blog post about how she went through like a polyamorous phase or something. So like maybe they were polyamorous, but I actually, at the time of the writing of the article, this didn't, uh, uh, I, I didn't have evidence to support that. And I felt kind of bad that it was the narrative got kind of uh, it, it ran ahead of itself, and and now everybody is talking about this polykill, and probably for the movie there'll be like some polykill scene, and I I, I might just who's playing Oh gosh, I have I I don't know at all. Who's that guy? Timothy Timothy Chow Chow. I can't. Oh, sure. Guy. He's a little he's handsome a... for uh, for this, but I don't know. I guess it's a movie. <laughs> he'll, have to, he'll have to put on some weight, you know. Well, you guys, you guys saw SBF after time in the Slammer in the Bahamas. He was losing weight. He was looking very good. He's actually a very good-looking yeah. guy. Once mm-hmm. he like trims down, I think it's been <laughs> undercommented part of the story. Yeah, that's the. I mean, that's that's the major uh, crypto narrative of 2023 is whether. Um, SBF is going to get like a Sarnayev style Rolling Stone cover that drives all the uh, the ladies <laughs> <laughs> crazy. Yeah. Have a, like a glow up. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, well, do there? I mean, there's we're just waiting for a reality TV show that is like um, you know 
in prison it's so drab there's no colors how do we how do we make these these prisoners look look their best and uh, I think we, we start with him. Um, uh, well, I think, you know, this uh, provides a nice seg to a question we had about what you both thought, you know, might be the major narratives coming out of 2023. You both have your fingers on the pulse as uh, Coindesk people. And I guess, I, Mark, I think I'd, I'll ask that question to you. What do you think is going to be the major drivers here of thought is this are we still mired in scandal are there reasons to be optimistic are we going to attach ourselves to the ai stuff what do you what do you see coming i think well i think regulation is still going to be is still going to be a major narrative for 2023 i think the politicians are out for blood they are out for photo ops uh just like the regulators have to be seen doing something. The politicians have to be seen doing something. So, um, you know, this Congress, the 118th Congress, uh, there's going to be a lot more talk about digital assets this time than it probably has been uh, ever. Um, You know, I think it's definitely going to be very high in the agendas of the Senate Banking Committee and uh, the uh, Financial Services Committee in the House. you know, the you know, there's the stablecoin bill that's been kicking around since uh, at, least, at least last year. You know, there's the whole question of, uh, I think, as as we discussed before, you know, who ha- who who has proper jurisdiction, who should get proper jurisdiction? Should it be CFTC? Does the SEC already have the jur- authority it needs to police the industry? As Gary Gensler has claimed, that's going to. So I think Washington is going to be where a lot of relevant activity goes on. Uh, I, I would hope to see some interesting um, developments on, on, on the tech side of things, uh, kind of echoing what we were talking about before, is that in crypto, there's so much focus on the drama and there's so much, so much focus on things that are, you know, you know people who get attention on Twitter and, and the prices and, um, you, know, you know, protocol level development is important, right? FTX right. has overshadowed everything, but the merge... You know, that was a big deal that they pulled that off, mm-hmm. perhaps miraculous. And, you know, I, I, so I think like things going on at the underlying protocol level, like how is proof of stake going to work out? How resilient is Ethereum going to be uh, in the proof of stake system to, to centralization? I think that's a really important thing to keep an eye on, that it's because e- because it, it seems very technical, easy to kind of lose sight of that and like focus on. Uh, kind of these sort of more cartoonish aspects of the industry, but it's really important because you know you know if it works great if proof of stake does not end up in uh, you know lots of Ethereum transactions being censored you know more power that's a risk that people have to have to pay attention to you know those are a couple of thoughts that come to my mind uh, uh, Tr- Tracy what do you think the big stories of 2023 are I hesitate to throw out predictions because if you had asked me in the beginning of 2022 what my predictions for that year would be I would have gotten almost everything wrong <laughs> um, but that said uh, you know things that I will be keeping an eye out on um, Regulation for sure, Mark, that you mentioned, there are like five bankruptcies going on that I'm sure uh, will, um, you know, won't be ending anytime soon. And, we'll, you know, everybody will be following in, in 2023. Uh, and also I looking at just price movements in the past couple of uh in the past couple of weeks, um, there, there's kind of this like echo bubble narrative that's that's gaining steam. And so an echo bubble is just kind of like maybe a resurgence from the lows, but I don't think we're going to hit any all-time highs anytime soon this year. And a lot of people have compared um, 2023 with, you know, what you saw in Bitcoin um, or, or crypto prices in 2019. So it's kind of like, the year following the lows, this is just what other traders have said. I, I don't have a view on price one way or, or another. And I do think that, you know, as the FTX dust and Genesis dust continues to settle, there'll be new interesting um, projects that, that play out. I'm, I'm sure we're going to see the launches of new layer ones. I, I think there have been a lot of zero knowledge projects that are that are receiving VC funding. Also, it's just impossible to tell in crypto. It could all change. Um, all change in a second. But yeah, those are my those are my main thoughts. Mark, I'll, I'll just throw this over to you. I'm curious, like, why do you think 
that the values have kind of changed within crypto. You know, you got excited about it because it was sort of this new innovation um, within the financial markets. And now you kind of mentioned that a lot of the tension is on price. It's on these bankruptcies. It's on these wild personalities. But like, why, why has the focus, in your opinion, kind of moved away from the original values of crypto? I, th- I think it just happens whenever there's a bull run. It just brings in a lot of tourists. The, the really interesting thing about SBF is that he appeared to be sort of the kind of person who would be into crypto because of, um, you know, his other sort of esoteric interests. And he had this sort of, you know, absent-minded professor air about him. But mm. at the end of the day, you know, his goal was to make make money, you know, allegedly to give away. But he wanted to make a lot of money really fast. And he just saw crypto as, as, as a way to do it because it's so volatile. But he didn't really care about censorship-resistant resistant uh, money. He didn't care about uh, anonymous P2P digital cash or, you know, financial inclusion or, you know, any, you know, any self, it was just a means to an end to him. Otherwise he had that like kind of quirky air about him that, that, that seemed very charming. I think just the fact that there's a lot of money in it is, is why it sort of attracts bad actors. I think Twitter itself has done to crypto what it's done to the rest of the world, which is just that it's incentivizes histrionics and it incentivizes hyperventilating and it incentivizes um, attention seeking. The crypto community is just one of many victims of that. I suspect that's part of it too, is just, you know, social media has just turned us all into uh, into loudmouths and, uh, you know, into into drama queens. That I feel is, is, is part of it too. Um, you know, I think that as it got institutionalized, there, there is a tension, you know, some of the core values of the cypherpunks and the imperatives uh, of financial regulation. And there's different types of regulation, right? Like there's investor protection regulation, there's consumer protection regulation, there's uh, anti-money laundering regulation. The, you know, the anti-money laundering regulation in particular requires financial institutions uh, to re- collect a, a copious amount of personal information about their customers. Uh, it's not that, you know, I mean, you know, bank, it's one thing if a bank says, I need to know, see your tax returns because I'm writing you a mortgage. So because I don't want to know that you're, you're able to pay it back. Like that's reasonable. But if you want to set up a deposit account uh, or a PayPal account, you know, you have to provide personal information too. Part of that is to prevent fraud and for, ident- you know, identification purposes that way. But part of that is also because banks are kind of deputized law enforcement and financial institutions are deputized law enforcement. And this is you know, very much not what Satoshi envisioned. Um, there's public policy reasons why why businesses are required to collect this information beyond what their, their own businesses require. Uh, but at the same time, the result is that or your private information and my private information uh, is everywhere. It is, it's held at all these different honeypots. You know, in, in order to stay in business, these crypto exchanges, they have to become honeypots. Uh, and, you know, particularly as so and, and, and institutions, as they get in, you know, they have they have they have to do all this, too. And, and there might be very good reasons why why they have to. You know, Tracy mentioned zero knowledge proofs. And that is it's a wonderful it's a brilliant idea. I, I, we have we've seen it implemented in the crypto space, like in, in Zcash for privacy. Uh, we've seen it implemented on top of Ethereum. That's more, uh, I understand, as like a scaling solution as opposed to a privacy solution. Um, you know, just like, you know, removing the, the, the amount of data that has to be used. I, I would really love to see um, that, that vision come to fruition because the, the dream is I go to a bar and instead of showing them my driver's license, which has my exact birthday, I can show them some kind of proof that I'm at least 21 because they don't need to know my, they don't really need to know my exact birthday. They just need to know that I'm over 21. And similarly, you know, if, if you could have that kind of uh, zero knowledge proof that could say this person is not on the sanctions list, then maybe that person would not have to provide as much documentation or as much PII. And that I've been hearing about this for years. I've seen it implemented um, uh, on blockchains, but I'd like to really see it more in the, in the real world. Mm, so yeah, zero knowledge proofs. I'm also curious, you mentioned earlier in the podcast just how building peer-to-peer apps is difficult. Are you seeing things that excite, like, do you think, do you kind of see a future that peer-to-peer could work? Um, and do you see, like, like what kind of excites you in the peer-to-peer space, like, removed from centralized organizations? I unfortunately lack the technical 
expertise to be able to to be able to answer that question with confidence. I certainly hope so, because uh, I mean that would be the dream. You know, you guys are all involved in Urbit. I think Urbit is very interesting. I say this with all due respect. I, I, I do feel it is, it is still a work in progress in terms of user experience. The latest version of Landscape, very impressive compared to the previous version. And, you know, if, if you told, if you asked me two years ago when I started messing around with Urbit, you know, what the UX would be like now, I, I probably wouldn't have guessed that it would be as at least as handsome, uh, you know, a display as we see now. I mean, you now you have like emojis now, which like, yeah, I mean, it's, incredible it was, development. It seemed, it, it seemed in color, right? And, and it seemed very primitive at the time, which was part of its charm, to be honest, throwback to the early internet. Um, but, you know, that's that, you know, you're not going to get mass adoption that way. It is sort of in, in, endearing in that way. You know, I know that the uh, transition uh, in the network a couple of months ago was a little rocky. People who needed to update the software, um, you know, there, there were just kind of a lot of, uh, you know, you know, hiccups there. Again, I'm not, I'm not judging. I'm, I'm, I'm not a technical person. I'm sure it's extremely hard to do this in a peer-to-peer way. I don't, I don't know how it gets solved. I, I would like it to, I would like it to get solved because the dream is, 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 is one well worth pursuing. Right, the dream of I control my data, I take my data with me, I don't leave it with Mark Zuckerberg. Like, if you know, if if you can pull that off, God bless you. I am not a shape rotator; I am a word cell. So, uh, but just so I I I I can't really opine on the the technical feasibility of it. But it just it just seems it just does seem that it's very hard. You know, just like with Bitcoin. You know, if you you know you can you know you can use Bitcoin the easy quote unquote use Bitcoin the easy way by setting up a Coinbase account. And after they, after you provide your notarized stool sample, then you can finally get log in and then you can trade on Coinbase and it feels like you're using PayPal, but you're not really using Bitcoin in a, in a philosophical mm-hmm. sense. Or you can download Bitcoin Core and you can wait 48 hours for, for it to sync with the network, at least, at least on, on, on my machine, if you want to run a full node. And God bless you if you want to run a full node, but it's... Um, uh, it's it's hard. I mean, obviously, I got quite interested in Urbit for kind of similar reasons to what you've articulated, kind of this ideal of kind of personal sovereignty. Um, and it's just kind of, but it's interesting, I think, and I, I saw, you know, entering the space around the same time as Tracy in like 2017, there was all of this excitement and there was all this idea, there were these ideas of applying blockchains to solve a ton of problems. And then, you know, you look at 2022 and you look at all the companies, all the centralized finance companies going under and you're just like, none of those companies really had those values. So I, I don't know, I've been just sort of reflecting on it. Our interview with Matt Liston was interesting as well when he was kind of opining as Mitchell mentioned about the old days of crypto. And so I'm wondering, you know, it seems like there's not a question here so much, but it seems like maybe it just has been taking longer. And so people have kind of been unsure if you can even do it. For example, Elon Musk tweeted out like, he just didn't think peer to peer could work to replace Twitter. So there's this interesting, you know, problem potentially of people, maybe perhaps non-technical people, just, you know, waiting to see if it's even possible, not sure, not sure if it's even possible. Like, can you fly an airplane? Is it even possible? So, yeah, I think it'll be quite interesting, you know, as we see peer-to-peer apps built out. I mean, Tim Luck, maybe you could talk a little bit about peer-to-peer poker, because um, that was quite fascinating just to see, like, one of the first peer-to-peer apps actually built and, like, the challenges there. I mean, I don't want to do a whole plug for stuff we're doing, but I think, um, you know, Mark's point, Mark's points are like exactly right. There's significant challenges. Uh, that does mean in practice that everyone like in the space isn't able to, or isn't building a lot of like really necessary infrastructure because it's just like too hard. Um, and in terms of where we are, I think we're, there's a lot of progress being made on, you know, understanding the things that are stopping, you know, user experiences from being good. But in general, like words are kind of empty. And I think Mark's like identified the right problems. And I think we'll, you know, be progressively showing some solutions if we're, you know, at all on the right track. Yeah. Well, Tracy, have you ever, have you ever played around on Urbit or do we need to, we need to get you on the network? Oh, um, I'm embarrassed to say that I don't know what Urbit is. Oh, that's fine. Well, <laughs> connection issues. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, well, maybe maybe right after this episode, we'll give you the the, the quick pitch or something. Yeah. Well, on that note, guys, uh, this has been an awesome discussion. I think you really hit so much of what we are interested in and and what made 2022 such a crazy year. And I think 
Uh, perhaps the only thing we can agree on for 2023 is that we don't know exactly what it's going to bring, but I'm sure, uh, as Tracy said, it'll be interesting. That's one of the reasons that we're all here. So, Mark, Tracy, thank you guys so much for joining us. This has been a really illuminating discussion. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah. And uh, anything you guys uh, wanted to plug before we go, certainly go check out their articles on, on Coindesk and check out Consensus and Austin in April. Is that right, Mark? Yes. Uh, yes. All right. So I will plug uh, April 26th to 28th in Austin, Texas. Um, I will share with you guys a link uh, for those who uh, are yeah, interested we'll, in We'll put it in the show notes. You can, you can check out the – there's a preliminary agenda. There's, there's, there's a bunch of speakers that have been announced. Um, there are more that will be announced very soon. Uh, so, um, uh, I would say, I would say, uh, check it out and come join us. Yeah. I think a friend of the show, Hawkwine Tipwex went to consensus last year and I think had a, had a great time. So, um, it's, it'll be great. I'm sure. So thank you guys once again so much. And we'll see you next time on the network age. Hey everyone. Thanks for listening to the network age. It'll really help us to keep getting our ideas out there, getting, you know, great guests and giving you what you want. If you can just help us with a few things, uh, subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. Uh, give us a good rating. If you liked it, you know, hit that five stars and our Twitters are in the show notes for me, Bitchell and Nilrun. So follow us, retweet, promote the show. And we will keep giving you that amazing Network Age content that you love.